Hello everyone and welcome to Meeting New Friends Through Tessie's Lens. My name is Tessie Anthony Danasso and I'm here with my really dear friend Stuart Young. Welcome Stuart. Hi, thanks very much Tessie. It's really lovely to have you here. I, I, since the day we met, I think what you're doing is fascinating and I really wanted my friends to know all about what you're doing. So thank you so much for making the time to sit here and share your secrets with all of us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So Stuart was born in Royal Berkshire in 1977. He has a degree in zoology and microbiology. After completing his degrees, he worked in pharmaceuticals in New York. This is where he discovered his passion for wine. He realized that London is the center for the global wine trade. That is why he returned to the UK in 2002 to work for a couple of different wine merchants to get experience in the trade and learn the trade, as well as getting his WSET diploma, which stands for the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. Privately, Stuart loves to travel. That's how I met him and is a devoted father of two daughters. Welcome, Stuart. Thank you very much. Absolutely. What a lovely introduction. Wonderful. So, Stuart, tell me a question I always ask everyone before we're getting into the more in-depth questions. How did you meet me and what was your first impression of me? Well, Tessie, I met you on an island in the Channel Islands called Sark, which is a phenomenal place to visit. And certainly, if you haven't uh, if you haven't been there or seen it, then you should definitely look that up on the internet. It's a tiny island, about three miles by a mile. No cars, no street lights, horse and cart to take you up from the port. And mm -hmm. uh, we met at mm -hmm. uh, an opera event on Sark that was hosted for the Montessori schools. And my first impression, uh, the first thing I noticed really was just the energy that you have uh, and you, generosity and kindness that you immediately exude when we met. You instantly make people feel comfortable and happy and relaxed around you. And um, I think we shared a glass of... Uh, Glass of Sark cider, I think it was. Oh, yeah, we did. <laughs> Sark cider, and uh, they have as well a specific one. You can't call it champagne, but they have like a Sark Prosecco. Remember that one? Fantastic sparkling wine, yes, from the island, which uh, I think it was the first time that that had ever been shared with anybody. First time they brought it out of their caves there. Yes. Oh, yes, I remember it really. So yummy. Uh, so for everyone, if you can go to Sark, I think Stuart and I would agree that you should definitely put that on your bucket list because it is an island to visit, preferably in the summer. Definitely summertime. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think in the winter it's going to be a little bit uh, windy around because it's definitely, it's sea locked entirely. Very difficult to get to in the winter. Um, Aeroplanes, trains, ferries... Uh, horse and cart tractor <laughs> tractors uh, <laughs> it's pretty inaccessible so summertime is definitely the best time absolutely no so um so Stuart tell me a little bit about you tell me about your childhood what what um, were your first memories uh, where did you grow up and uh yeah, just share a little bit of yourself with us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I had a, a, a fabulous childhood. Uh, grew up in the countryside in Berkshire. Uh, it's a very relaxed environment, great school, lots of lovely friends. Uh, older sister, which was always fun. She was forever wanting to dress me up as her baby brother. So her and her friends would often uh, uh, go off into the garden and decide that they wanted to dress me up as various things. And I kind of played along. And I remember that probably was one of my earliest memories um, certainly one of the earliest photographs that I recall uh, was was me 
uh, yeah, dressed on a swing as, as some kind of doll or something. I'm not entirely oh. sure what it was, but it was pretty funny. You need to find that for <clears throat> us so we can share it. <laughs> <laughs> that's been that's long gone now. <laughs> but uh, no, it was great. Older sister, um, parents, uh, my father who worked, um, worked in London, um, actually ran a couple of different associations representing British industry mm. uh, worldwide, which was fantastic. So he traveled a lot. And I think that gave me my um, my passion for traveling and for exploring different cultures and different countries. And uh, that's something which I've obviously continued, uh, but something I started at a very early age. I don't remember my first flight uh, on an airplane, but I was certainly yeah, no more than probably three or four years old uh, when we made our first, first long trip. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so... Getting into you as a young adult, then, um, as we explored in the in your bio, and I didn't know that at all. Um, why did you get into zoology, and how do you even get into zoology? I, I think it's fascinating. <laughs> do you know it's it's a difficult it's a difficult um, question to answer concisely. But um, I was always outside uh, from a very early age, always either in my parents' garden or playing in the woods opposite our home. Um, but always discovering, always, you know, climbing trees, turning over rocks, wanting to know how things worked and wanting to understand the natural world. And it became very evident that that was something that I had a real penchant for. I really wanted to, to understand how things worked and what made things work in the natural world rather than perhaps engineering. My father's an engineer, so it's a very different route, uh, route from him. That is incredible. So, so within that in mind, and also the, the microbiology, what was at the time your dream job? Well, a, a dream dream job um, is is always one of those tricky sort of questions. You always think to yourself, "I'd love to be a research scientist. I'd love to go and uh, study." At the time when I was studying, uh, the big movement was in uh, was in genetics, uh, and it's why I did microbiology. I wanted to study microbial genetics and understand the genome. So we were working on the human genome, well, was the, what became the Human Genome Project. Um, so the idea of being able to map a DNA sequence and use that to, let's say, cure cancer. I mean, it's not, not, a, not mm -hmm. a stretch. This is how this whole process started, uh, you know, sort of 15, 20 years ago. And to be able to work in that field was, was a, real, um, a real driver for me. And also, um, I studied for a year in the US, as, as you mentioned, uh, I've traveled and then lived in the States. Um, I went there to follow a particular professor, uh, a professor Olby, and he'd studied with, or he'd studied um, in Cambridge with Watson and Crick on the discovery of the double helix. So oh, wow. again, that was a very inspirational story for me. Absolutely. And he was still alive doing a, a lecture tenure. And um, I was desperate to go and study under him. So I won a scholarship to go and study in the US and, uh, and work closely with him. So that really uh, cemented my desire and, and, uh, and dreams to really get very heavily involved in, uh, in the genetics world. That is incredible. So did you ever really spoke to him? Yeah, I'd let, he was my lecturer for, uh, for a year. So oh. I actually studied, um, the, the course was the history and philosophy of science and scientific theory and how scientific theory has evolved and how that's been influenced by politics and by religion through the years. So it was a very fascinating and interesting mm. um, course to study under Professor Olby. And um, ultimately from there, obviously after graduation, as you mentioned, I uh, ended up working as a pharmaceutical rep in, in New York City in Manhattan, mm -hmm. which was fantastic. Um, 
And then just through that, got to drink a lot of fine wine, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all love wine? I definitely am a, a wine lover, uh, red p particularly. I'm not, I still need to get a news. Well, I think I haven't really matched my white and rosé yet. So maybe you can help me with that. Um, but moving on then, as you already mentioned it now briefly, How did you get into the wine industry? What triggered it? And uh, can you explain to us a little bit more for people like me who have no clue how you get in it? What is that diploma? Where do you find it? Is it difficult? How long does it take? Absolutely. Um, the wine industry is actually very accessible. A lot of people enter the wine industry through working in a local retailer, and that could even be a local supermarket. You can have a wine specialist in Waitrose, for example. So a lot of people get into the, the wine trade that side, uh, that way, and they get to study the WSET, which is the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, um, through different ranks, different levels. And it starts with just a one-day course. So anybody out there mm. could Google WSET. Uh, the school is based in Bermondsey in South London, uh, but there are courses run throughout the whole of the UK and through Europe. So it's very accessible, and you can do a one-day wine appreciation course that's run by the WSET, which is a fabulous entry into wine. It shows how you can um, look at wine, qualify its quality, how you can taste properly, and gives you a few hints and tips as to what you should be looking out for uh, when you're perhaps buying wine in a restaurant. That's amazing. That's definitely, I think, in my head, I'm already thinking that is a great Christmas gift, isn't it? Absolutely. To get someone like a one-day uh, course like that, such as my dad and so on. So... Um, The course you took, how long did it take you? What were the obstacles as well? What did you find really tough? The toughest part for me uh, is blind tasting. So if you imagine you're sat at a white table and you have five, ten glasses of red wine in front of you and no more information than that, and just through sight, through smell and through taste, you have to identify not only the country that the wine came from, mm. but the potential vintage, the grape variety, an idea of what the price point might be commercially, and be able to do that all within a very constructed and sort of concise way is very, very difficult. So blind tasting, I think, is, is a real challenge, but something that uh, you can only get better at by opening and drinking more wine. So it's a win-win. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So for the ones who haven't done the course, like for me, for example, when I see a glass of wine in front of me, how, what are the things to pay attention to, to know it's a good wine? Do you know, it's a difficult, it's, it's a good question. A lot of people say to me, you, you know, Stuart, you refer to wine as wine or as fine wine or as very fine wine. You know, what are these differentials? Is it price mm. point? Is it quality of wine? Is it where the wine is from? Yeah. Um, and to be honest, a lot of people, because of these, because of these nomenclature, because of these um, barriers, uh, are nervous around wine and don't feel confident with wine. But actually... Fine wine or, or, or great wine, for me, fine wine is something which can involve you um, beyond just its taste. It can involve you intellectually uh, and emotionally. So you can learn about the stories behind the wine and the people behind the wine. And for me, that's the real joy of a fine wine. It's understanding everything around 
the, 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 the whole process from, you know, from, from the vineyards through to the glass and the people that are behind each stage of that process. Um, but really, wine isn't, isn't a complicated subject. I think a lot of people overcomplicate it. And sadly, um, especially in London, as you mentioned, being a real focal point for, for the wine trade, I think that the mystique um, that's grown up around certain chateaux in Bordeaux or in Burgundy, uh, limited allocations and all of these sorts of things has led to quite a closed view on wine. And that's why I'm so excited about wine from California, because, mm. of course, you know, being from California, being from the West Coast, so much more relaxed, so much more uh, open and friendly and accessible, even though the wines aren't very accessible because, of course, they're produced in such tiny quantities. Mm -hmm. But it just gives people an opportunity to uh, enjoy wine for its own sake rather than having to worry too much about all of the, the nuances and the minutiae of the detail. So tell me, so your company is called Four Corner Wines? Four Corners Wine, that's correct. Exactly. Yes. So we will also put the link below so you can definitely check it out. And you do, of course, all of these uh, different wine tasting evenings and all kinds of other events, which as well I will put a link below cool. so you can get in touch with Stuart. But let's go back one step um, about the history of wine uh, that you were just mentioning. So you work with Californian wine. Why Californian wine then in more detail? And who, who are your families, I would say then, mm -hmm. uh, that you're working with? And um, yeah, how do you find them, I uh, guess? Because there is a lot of different <laughs> wines as well in California. Abs absolutely. Well, I think um, I, I, having worked in the London wine trade and having had such a focus on Bordeaux and Burgundy, and rightly so, because they make, you know, there are phenomenal wines coming from obviously Bordeaux and Burgundy. Mm -hmm. Lots of names that some of the listeners may have heard of. Chateau Lafitte, Le Tour, Chateau Aubriand, Le Pin, Petrus. Mm. And then, of course, from Burgundy, you've got DRC, so Domaine de Romani Conti. Uh, with Richburg and Romani Conti, um, phenomenally expensive wines, but but highly sought after. Um, there are really in London probably twenty to twenty five Bordeaux class growths that are traded in London and that are circulated and that one would see on a on a good restaurant wine list. And it becomes with the with the internet as the internet's developed and as um, the wine merchants have become more open and more accessible it becomes just a, a commodity to trade, which becomes a bit of a shame. So you lose that contact with the wineries and you lose that contact with, with clients, with private clients who are looking to buy wines. And I think if you take the personality out, then you lose a lot of the fun and a lot of the love. What you get from California are wines that are absolutely of that quality level. They would sit side by side with the very best wines from Bordeaux. But you get so much more joy, you get so much more excitement, you get so much more pleasure from those wines because you can drink them young, they're accessible to people, and as I say, quality-wise, they absolutely sit shoulder to shoulder with their peers from Bordeaux. Oh, that is so exciting. I cannot wait to come to your wine tastings as well because they look fantastic. So getting into um, a little bit more of the discussion of, for example, um, Millennials, such as myself. Mm -hmm. uh, I personally uh, am not the greatest wine knower. I appreciate it incredibly much, but I know I have so much to learn. And definitely people such as my father or other people close to me are always helping me out to find the best wines. Um, would you agree that now that we have, you know, social media, for example, young people, it's 
they don't put pictures anymore when they're drunk or anything like that as we have would have maybe done more when we were young it was more of that that rebellious youth we had but now the the youth that is coming up is very mindful is very healthy is very um luxurious they're looking for luxurious products and wine is definitely one um so what um did you see a trend in young adults such as in their 20s who are also investing in wine and is investment in wine um, a good investment? Yeah, absolutely. I think we've seen a massive move towards the younger generation, the millennial generation, um, getting involved in wines. And I think the movement came initially uh, in restaurants and with food. The idea of farm to table, the idea of people wanting to know where their food comes from or Mm -hmm. how it's grown, whether it's meat or vegetables, it doesn't really matter. People Mm -hmm. want to know where it's from. Uh, English asparagus, for example, during the asparagus season is a very exciting thing now. And you'll see that across London in some of the great restaurants. Um, really celebrating our our, our natural larder here in the UK. And the same movement has kind of replicated really around the world. A lot of people are a lot more interested in what they're consuming. And that has definitely flowed over into wine. People don't now necessarily want to just drink, you know, three bottles of wine for £10 from their supermarket. If they're going to go and buy a bottle of wine, they prefer to have one really good quality bottle of wine. Mm. And I think uh, I think your listeners may agree. If you think back to a wonderful meal you've had with friends or with family, you very often remember the wine that you drank, not necessarily the food that you have. So I think people celebrate a great bottle of wine now a lot more than they ever have. And certainly with the younger generation, that's been the case. With investment, it's a, it's a, it's another um, additional sort of comfort level, if you like, for buying fine wine, especially buying fine wine from California. California gives you the opportunity to drink quality wines younger. With Bordeaux, everybody's used to the concept of laying wines down or cellaring wines for 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. With California, the way that the wines are produced, certainly in the Napa Valley, if you're to take that as an example, they're made to drink a lot younger. They will age, and they will age beautifully for 20, 30, 40 years, but they're much more accessible, much younger. So you get that that instant gratification. You don't have to lay that wine down for 20 years before you open it. You don't have to have a cellar at your home. So all of these things mean mm. that it becomes a much more accessible route for younger generations to come through. And also, you don't always want to do what your father did or what your mother did. So if your father has a, a great collection of Bordeaux and Burgundy, that's fantastic. Drink his Bordeaux and Burgundy, buy your own wine from California or from Italy or from uh, any of the other really great emerging uh, regions in the world. That's really fascinating. So so for California then specifically, let's take Napa Valley as you mentioned it. Why can you consume it earlier? What's the difference in production, for example? Well, Napa... Is it the heat, maybe? It, it's, it's the sunshine. So a lot mm-hmm. of people think that Napa is incredibly hot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it does get hot. There's no, no escaping the fact that it does get well into the 90s, um, you know, for, for, for periods of the summer and sometimes up over 100 degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, but Napa's, Napa's very interesting. Because it's a valley and it sits between the Maya Camus and the Vaca Mountains, it's actually a very small area. It's about 28 miles north to south. It's about eight miles wide at the north, uh, sorry, at the south, and about a mile wide at the north. And what happens is 
cool air from the Pacific Ocean gets funneled in through the San Pablo mm. Bay. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, mm. up, and it gets sucked up through the valley and then out into the desert. So each morning, or a lot of the mornings in Napa, even through the sunny, sunshine growing season, um, the valley is covered with fog. So you can be up in the mountains and you can look down and you just see the fog and then the fog clears through the day and then you get the glorious sunshine. So the ripeness of the fruit and the development of the, 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 the pyrazines and the chemicals within the fruits uh, happens over a longer period of time, but because of more sunshine hours rather than because of more heat. So you get a really beautiful rounded fruit texture and that makes for phenomenal wine. Oh, yummy. I don't know about you guys, but I really crave a good glass of red wine now. <laughs> so um, before I let you go, what would you share with our listeners? Like as a must-have wine from California, what's your favorite brand? And uh, of course, you will share the link as well from them on your, from your website. And um, anything else you want to share about wine That, uh, that we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, fantastic. We mentioned the, the, the idea of families and, uh, and of uh, relationships and um, family history and provenance in that sense, and that giving a real personal feel to the wines. And I think um, somebody to mention there is um, a lady who's been very generous to, to, to me and to Four Corners Wine. Um, Four Corners, by the way, we're called Four Corners Wine. Yes, exactly. California. Um, and I'm sure many of the, you guys out there have been to California and visited California. And you'll know that it's a melting pot of people from all around the world, from the four corners of the earth, who come together in California, who work to create this phenomenal, certainly from California, this phenomenal wine industry. Mm -hmm. So it really is just a nod to the diversity in, in the valley and across the state of California. That's why we're called Four Corners Wine. That's really wine. nice. Um, but to talk about one particular lady and definitely um, a winery I think that a lot of people should look out for for two reasons. Um, one is because the wines are great. Two is because the lady behind it, Robin Lale, is she's almost like the queen of Napa. Mm -hmm. um, she's been in the industry. She's in her... 70s perhaps now i know you shouldn't comment on a, on yeah. a lady's age never uh, never <laughs> she, wouldn't, she wouldn't mind she wouldn't mind um and she started off uh with her great great grandfather um producing wine one of the first people to actually uh plant commercial grapes in napa valley mm, and through wow. her family they founded a winery called Inglenook. Uh, which is now actually owned by Francis Ford Coppola, the director, but Inglenook. And then her family taught Robert Mondavi to make wine. And Mondavi is a very big name now in California with a huge number of different uh, wines under his, under his family label. Um, and she worked, Robin worked as a personal assistant to Robert Mondavi. Um, she grew up as a Mormon, so there was no alcohol at all in her family. Oh, wow. Uh, until That's she, really interesting. Yeah, until she decided <laughs> to go back to California and, uh, and study wine. And she then, through a process of, of meeting friends and making friends with people over in Bordeaux, Christian Moex, for example, who's a very well-known winemaker in, uh, in Bordeaux, and um, a chap called Philippe Melker, who's another phenomenal winemaker, um, they got together to initially produce a wine uh, that now is still, still very well regarded called Dominus. Um, so she co-founded Dominus with Christian Moex, co-founded another winery 
uh, with a chap called Bill Harlan. And uh, he's definitely mm. worth looking up and we can put a link yes, to absolutely. Harlan Estate as well. And then went on to found her own wine label, Lale Vineyards, and she produces just four wines, two red, two white, two which are called Blueprint, and they really are a blueprint for the valley. So if you want to try a California Cabernet Sauvignon, which is a really representative of what great modern California winemaking is, then the Blueprint Cab is perfect. If you want to look at something with a little bit more complexity and a little bit more um, perhaps ageability, they make a top wine which is called J. Daniel in honour of her father, John Daniel, and the mm. J. Daniel Cuvée, um, which consistently scores 9900 points from the major critics, is another limited allocation wine which is uh, well worth checking out. So we'll put some links to those and you guys can take a look and see what you think. Absolutely. What I love as well, and I let you go within, within that, uh, that thought, is that when you do the events, what I love about it as well is that you do have actually also the winemakers that come from California to present their wine and talk about the history and the complexity of their own creations. Is that right? That's absolutely right, Tessie. Yes, we love to do that. We Wine's all about sharing experiences and it's all about friendships and, and new friendships. And so what we like to do, instead of just hosting a dinner in London at a nice restaurant or at a you know nice hotel restaurant, we like to fly the winemakers or the owners over to the UK, to London, or we've hosted dinners in Monaco or across Europe. And get people to meet them firsthand and, and ask questions and, you know, pull corks, share share stories, open wines and, uh, you know, wine is to be shared and enjoyed uh, and drunk as a social, uh, you know, social experience for people. So yes, we make sure that winemakers come over. Dinners are relatively small, maybe 10, 12, 15 people, something like that. So it's intimate, it's very relaxed and um, we make it super good fun for everybody to be able to just learn a bit more. And it doesn't matter if you don't know anything about wine at all. Um, there's no, there's no, you know, pretense or, uh, or pressure or prerequisite <laughs> um, to have any kind of knowledge. And in fact, you know, the less you know, the more you'll possibly get from it. So fantastic opportunities to meet winemakers, share some fabulous foods, and uh, of course be introduced to some great new wines. That's fantastic. Well, on that beautiful note, I think we're both ready for a good glass of wine. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, Stuart, for coming. I will make sure everyone receives the links below so you can get in touch with Stuart directly because that is what this podcast is about, meeting new friends for Tessie's Lens. So Stuart is as well your new friend now. So do get in touch and learn more about wine. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. Thank you very much, guys. I really look forward to hearing from you. Please don't uh, don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you so much, Stuart. So this was a podcast with Stuart Young, episode six. Thank you so, so much and stay tuned for the next one. Bye, guys.